It's been a season of crime in California, real and perceived. Smash and grab thefts, follow home robberies, high profile murders, national, even international news accounts have painted a golden state of chaos. But the numbers tell a different story. Some major crime indicators are up, others are down. We're nowhere near historical highs, but that reality isn't making anyone happy. And when Californians get mad about crime, watch out, America. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, January 7th, 2021. Today, we examine California's historical approach to crime waves. Basically, the state didn't just throw the book at people. It dumped the entire library on them. You'll hear from my fellow LA Times Metro columnist, Erica D. Smith, about the state's legacy. And I'll also chat with our fellow colleague, Sam Dean, about how luxury stores are taking advantage of public fear right now and making it work to their advantage. A company spokesman says despite increases in security, theft at the San Francisco stores is five times the Walgreens average. The company says organized retail theft is causing it to close five more stores. Tension on the streets right now is palpable. Rich people feel threatened in a way they haven't in a while, if ever. And that has criminal justice reform advocates worried that their years-long efforts like bail reform, defund the police, decriminalization of certain offenses, that those efforts might be derailed or undone altogether by politicians and the public. LA Times Metro columnist Erica D. Smith recently wrote about this in the wake of the killing of Jacqueline Avon, the prominent black philanthropist. Erica, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me on. I got to admit, the inspiration for this episode came out of your column on the matter, but specifically the headline, quote, don't let Jacqueline Avon's shooting get pulled into L.A.'s crass politics of crime. That phrase to me was just incredible. Crass politics of crime. What did you mean by it? You know, there's the politics of crime. What we talk about public reaction to the perception of crime. I mean, the numbers are what they are. But then there's this idea that oh my God, California's going to chaos, LA's going to chaos, we're all going to die. You know, it's rampant, criminals are taking over the streets. And then there's this perception that the politicians have to, you know, assure people that everything's okay, that, you know, they're on top of the problem. Yeah, like Governor Gavin Newsom a few weeks ago made this whole announcement. We are putting out over a quarter of a billion dollars in competitive enforcement grants to help aid and advance the prosecution of people that are involved in organized retail theft. And then there's also the, you know, the policing aspect of this, which is the capitalization of on crime of like, this is why you need to support us. We're out there to support you. You should fund us. You should give us all the leeway that you need. And so it just kind of gets sucked into this like vortex of things that are so unrelated to what actually happened. And and you can kind of see that already starting to happen. And it's not just L.A., Oakland, California, Mayor Libby Schaaf said she'll push to reverse planned cuts to the city's police department as homicides and other violence spike in the city. Other liberal cities that joined the defund the police movement are also having second thoughts. The city council in Portland, Oregon, unanimously passed a fall budget, increasing the police budget by $5.2 million. Your column's headline was great, Erica, but I'd go out even more and say California's crass politics of crime because this state has been at that game since almost the start. 
All the way back in 1855, the state passed the so-called Greaser Act, which targeted unemployed Mexicans with the threat of arrest under the idea that, you know, unemployed Mexicans are dangerous. And you know the roster of really hardcore laws. Three strikes, commit three felonies, you're in prison for life. Prop 187-1994, which sought to criminalize undocumented immigrants and the people who helped them. The massive expansions of prisons in California in the 1980s and 1990s. What makes Californians so mad about the idea of crime in a way that's different from the rest of the country? You know, I don't really know. I mean, in some ways, you would almost think that it, it would be less so because California is so large and you can see the examples of of ways things work in different ways in different cities. I mean, I'm from the Midwest and, you know, I remember growing up and in the 80s and the 90s and hearing about the ramp up of prisons in California in part because of rap. But, you know, you would hear all of this like massive reaction and overreaction to crime and what we now call drug addiction and throwing people in jail or in prison forever is not actually solving anything. So it's really kind of disappointing to see that politicians are starting to talk that talk again of the the same rhetoric I heard as a kid and now it's back again. And it's it's just, I don't know. It's a fascinating thing about California. It's the suburbs. It's the suburbs. <laughs> Probably right. But I mean, historically, you have seen that like California has always been this progressive beacon. No, there's always been this dark side to it. And interestingly enough, most of the times it goes about the idea of crime and clamping down on crime. Yeah, it is. It's kind of this like disconnect, uh, you know, this paradox of California where Californians want to say that we are the most progressive people and everybody is okay here and we're all welcoming. But, you know, the moment that something is not in that norm, we try to slap it down. And in some ways, I think it's almost this idea of we need to protect this progressivism, like the people marauding through the streets or uh, of criminals are going to somehow threaten California progressivism and the way of life that we have when you know, I, maybe it's just a function of who has been in power for so many years. And maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, maybe we won't go down that same road in the next few years. And now that you've been here for a while, how have you seen our backlashes against crime influence how crime is confronted in the rest of the United States? You know, it's interesting. I, I do think that like seeing that reform movement starting here again and seeing it ripple out across the U.S., that's continuing to happen in, in cities. I mean, obviously, we're not defunding police departments in, in mass, but there has been, I think, a fundamental rethinking about this idea of just throwing people in jail forever and that our criminal justice system does have flaws and that it does make mistakes. And so I do think, too, that now California is now rethinking the rethinking about criminal justice reform. Yeah. We'll have more after this break. Erica, the two of us have written in our columnas about activists who are fighting against California's historical heavy hand against crime. That was your launching off point for writing about the death of Jacqueline Avon, the legendary philanthropist. I mean, you put it best when you wrote, quote, who in the hell shoots an 81-year-old woman, end quote, and yet you urge caution about our collective response. One of the things I got from talking to a number of her um, close friends is that they all wanted this to be treated like the crime that it is. If it's the person that was arrested, they want him to be punished. But they don't want this to be the slippery slope of saying, oh, we need to crack down on every single person that does X, Y, and Z. And if anything, what led this person to slip through the cracks, going to prison multiple times, getting out on parole, being free to potentially commit more crimes. Let's talk about that issue as opposed to talking about how we need to like crack down on every single parolee and throw them all back in jail and, you know, do the things that we did in the 90s. I think it's more about 
looking at this case and learning something from it. And that's one of the things that I, I heard again and again from the people that I spoke to. Yeah, you're even hearing now all these critiques of Prop 47. That was a 2014 ballot initiative that California voters passed. It classified some nonviolent felonies as misdemeanors, and critics especially hate it because robberies in California aren't considered a felony anymore if the amount stolen is less than $950. That is completely political because Prop 47 is not new, you know, and there's been a number of research and studies done on the effects of it. But to blame that solely on Prop 47, which passed years ago, is just insane to me. But it, it also reflects the people who are running for office who didn't like Prop 47 when it first was passed or, or approved and still don't like it. And they're using what's happening now as, an ex as a reason to point fingers at Prop 47 to get it rolled back. That kind of goes back to this idea of the crass politics of crime a years old ballot proposition when that is the thing somehow that is like causing this. Blaming it on a rise in violent crime after we've all been through a pandemic and economic upheaval. Now we find ourselves at this moment, you're seeing the politicians talking really tough on crime. How about the activists who have labored for decades to change public thinking about how to approach crime? What are they telling you about this moment? They want to continue with reform. They know that it's going to take time. They know that it's the right thing to do. And they're not deterred by this rise in violent crime. And they definitely don't think we should be adding more cops to police departments, as Oakland uh, recently chose to do. And as, as most cities are now doing. I mean, there was a case in Pomona, and I believe it was a Pomona Unified School District, where they said they were not going to allow uh, police officers on campuses. And guess what? They're back in there. That is something that I think the activists have recognized they've lost ground on. I definitely think the sides are kind of dug in on what they view as the way to, quote unquote, solve this problem. And then finally, Erica, how do you see voters and politicians reacting to crime as it was perceived in 2021? If the crime rate, if violent crime rate does start to go down, I mean, then it potentially won't be as big of an issue by the time voters uh, cast their ballots. But if it continues to even stay at this level or continues to rise, I think it's going to be an increasing issue. And it, it's something that everybody who's running for office is going to have to address from, you know, school board on to DA to attorney general, depending on where you are. Um, but what also be interesting to see is how that intersects with the level of like talking about homelessness. It's all intertwined. And so I do think this idea of public safety and California is just feeling safe walking down the street, the perception of what they feel safe, you know, how they feel safe and whether they feel safe in their neighborhoods. I think that's going to be a big issue going into next year's elections. Erica, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, what's really going on with retail crime in California? We'll hear about it. During the holiday season, news about robbers going to high-end boutiques from San Francisco to Los Angeles with hammers went viral. Law enforcement and even California Governor Gavin Newsom vowed swift crackdowns on the phenomenon. But are the Hermes and Louis Vuittons of the world really hurting? LA Times business reporter Sam Dean investigated. Sam, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me. First, what do we know about the numbers regarding such crimes? Are smash and grabs unprecedented? Are these losses record-breaking? Well, these recent ones are certainly high profile, and those do seem to be, you know, somewhat unprecedented just in the kind of concentration and number of people with hammers showing up. But the losses are not uh, record-breaking as far as we know, and it part because we don't have good numbers on any of this stuff. National numbers on property crime, retail crime, uh, smash and grabs are just really shaky. 
Yeah, I think of going after luxury brands, and I'm thinking of like the Pink Panther, like one guy stealing a $5 billion diamond or something, not these things, which seems like you just grab what you can and just run. Yeah, like if, you, if you're going to do that, you'd think you'd go for a jewelry store or something like that, not just like grabbing a couple sweaters at Nordstrom. It's been a thing in high-end retail for a long time, but definitely the kind of uh, coordinated level of this is, does seem new in California, at least. We're focusing on luxury brands right now, but one of the big things you heard from this year in California is how chains with working class clientele like CVS have also lost millions of dollars to shoplifting. And the companies claim that that's why they've been closing down these stores in big cities. Yeah, I mean, that's also another kind of fact check resistant claim. So uh, Walgreens was the one that made a lot of headlines in San Francisco for shutting down stores in response to uh, what they're calling, you know, a wave of shoplifting. But they refused to actually give numbers to the press. Uh, They had published, you know, a year ago in their public statements that they were planning on shutting a lot of stores across the country. And, you know, in that instance, you know, CVS has kept its stores open in San Francisco. Walgreens has shut them down. So it doesn't really seem like there's a one-to-one relationship between this stuff happening and stores shutting down. They do say that there has been an uptick in in thefts and stuff in the past year as the pandemic has gone on, uh, which you can imagine happening for a lot of reasons because, you know, uh, the pandemic <laughs> happened and kind of uh, upended everyone's lives. But yeah, but the, the numbers on actual how much theft is happening and what direction it's going in are kind of hard to prove or, or even find. But it's interesting how that becomes the narrative. The narrative that you hear nationwide is like, there's so much theft, there's so much shoplifting in California now because of lax prosecution that these multi-billion dollar national chains, they have to close because they're just under so many attacks. Yeah, I've talked to experts and they say that retail crime, shoplifting, that kind of stuff is always underreported just because it's kind of written into a lot of businesses' bottom lines that there's going to be some quote-unquote shrink, whether that's from employees taking stuff, people shoplifting, merchandise going bad. But the numbers are, you know, there's been a slight uptick in property crime in the last couple years in some metrics in California, but by and large, it's way lower than it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 or 30 years ago. These stores have existed for a long time. It doesn't really make sense that a slight change in, you know, a couple people shoplifting more would suddenly change their whole economics. The political response to these robberies, though, has been swift and prominent. Like, you never see this when it comes to something like, say, wage theft, which, uh, according to some estimates in California, goes up to almost $2 billion a year every year, or just the crime that happens in poorer communities. So why the big responses to these smash and grab robberies? And please don't say because the people who are being robbed are rich and powerful. (laughs) Well, you know, that is part of it. Uh, But there is a bit of a concerted effort on the part of the retail uh, lobbying groups. And they've been pushing, you know, some legislation and asking for more enforcement around what they're calling organized retail theft, which is when you see a large group of people going in at once, that indicates that they are organized, at least on the level of that they've texted each other before. You know, it's not just one person uh, showing up and shoplifting. And then a lot of these cases, law enforcement has been able to connect back to you know, a fence, basically. Someone who has a warehouse, they say, hey, can you go get a bunch of deodorant? Hey, can you go get a bunch of sweaters or whatever? And then they ask people to go out and shoplift those things, and then they sell them online. And so some of these industry groups are trying to get uh, regulation put on Amazon and Facebook Marketplace, other online marketplaces. And so they've been putting out a lot of studies saying that, oh, this is a big problem. Retail crime is becoming more advanced and sophisticated. So therefore, we need legislation. And, you know, law enforcement has caught some of these organized retail crime rings. People do sell stuff online. Like, you know, this does happen. There's really not a lot of info on, even from the industry, on how much money they're losing to this. I mean, one estimate is that, uh, you know, they're losing 0.07% in sales 
to organized retail crime, which wow. is, it's like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's commensurate to like a statewide uh, response, but uh, it's a, it's a pretty small rounding error, you know, compared to things like inflation, supply chain problems, wage increases, you know. And are the retailers saying these are record-breaking years of losses for them? Because, you know, you're talking about organized crime rings or theft rings to sell products on the black market, but this has been going on for decades. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely nothing new. And the the numbers that they do have to indicate that this is changing are about kind of sentiment. I mean, it's it's interesting if you read the industry reports, it's that a lot of people who run these stores feel that this is changing and that it's going up. Mm. But it's 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 hard to peg against, you know, is that going up in the last year? Is that going up in the last 20 years? You know, definitely if you look at the crime stats nationwide, crime in general, property crime is is down over the last two decades. And so, you know, there's no real way to argue that this is net going up. You know, and I am trying to talk to loss prevention experts, you know, people who run the kind of anti-shoplifting operations on a lot of these chains to see if they've also you know, there might be a, there's been a shift to some degree in how they respond to people who are shoplifting. So maybe now people just see it happen and people are being less sneaky about it because they know that, you know, the security guard doesn't want to just beat up someone for walking out with a couple power tools. You know, I don't know. It's just like maybe a cultural shift at the level of the store. Is there anything to the urban legend that some bigger retailers actually tell their security guards don't even bother stopping people because not only is it not going to be worth it, but the insurance actually will take care of us. Yeah, I mean, for the bigger companies, insurance does cover a lot of this stuff and it's built into their bottom line to some degree. I mean, it's it's just an accepted part of doing business. They obviously want to keep it down as far as possible because it's just, you know, money lost for them. But in cases of uh, looting and things like that, for the bigger companies, insurance does cover a lot of this stuff. And, and that's true for shoplifting as well. You mentioned earlier the idea of sentiment, that even if the numbers are kind of nebulous and if uh, some crime rates are a little bit higher, they're nowhere near where they were a decade ago or 30 years ago. But a lot of people are not feeling that. A lot of people are feeling like a lot of this is unprecedented, maybe because it is more prominent. You see more on social media. And earlier in this episode, I talked to our colleague, Erica D. Smith, about that, about how when California gets mad because of crime, the response historically has been super aggressive and the rest of the U.S. has followed in our response. Do you see these smash and grabs and the response to them fitting into this pattern? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a larger dynamic at play that I'm not going into so much looking at the business side of things here. But if you've been following politics in the Bay Area for the past year, there's a recall campaign against the district attorney there. Chesa Boudin, yeah. Yeah. And there's just like a lot of people beating the drum saying that crime is up, things need to change. It definitely fits into that pattern. And I think there's a bit of a funny disconnect here between the industry groups saying we need to crack down on Amazon, basically saying, you know, you used to have to know a guy who would sell you something off the back of a truck. Now you can just go on Facebook and buy something that may or may not be off the back of a truck. But the industry groups are pushing for that, whereas the politicians and a lot of local commentators are saying the response needs to be, uh, you know, uh, sentencing, prosecution, just very different things than what the industry itself is even calling for. So it's just, it's interesting to see that disconnect. The smash and grabs do play into that narrative, I think, because they're so spectacular too. And I've talked to some criminal justice experts, and there's always a question of kind of, even on things like public safety and crime, like a return on investment, you know, to talk in crass business terms. And it's like, if 0.07% of sales are going to this problem of organized retail crime, like, is this something that we should respond to uh, in full force as a state? Well, the way California historically has been, the voters in 2022 will definitely have some sort of say. So, Sam, thank you so much for this conversation. No, thank you. 
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, we've got the push to drive gas stoves into extinction, a history of Chuck E. Cheese, and more random randomness. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Lauren Rapp. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Alexander Higgins. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news on Desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>